We've got two Bible readings today. Uh, first one from Hosea 11, verses 1 to 9, on page 642. And then we're reading from Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And I was thinking that, uh, yeah, the Matthew ones could become Porker's favourite chapter because it's a bit of a rip-snorter. As you'll, for those who have already read it, you'll know what we're talking about. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Admar? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One among you, I will not come in wrath. And the second reading is from Matthew chapter 1. Reading from... Verse 1 through to 17, the genealogy of Jesus. See how many breaths I can not take during this. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Ebiad, Ebiad the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. 
Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. When you read a list of names like that, do you ever think, what's the point? Do you ever think, surely this is irrelevant as to come across a list of names like that in the Bible? Well, Matthew starts his account of Jesus' life with a list of names, and he does it for a reason. We might want to skip over it in our quiet time as we're reading it and, and, you know, get to the real action. But if we did, we'd actually be missing out on a lot. Getting the origins of Jesus right is critical if we're going to get his identity right. And getting Jesus' identity right is actually the most critical thing you can ever do. So let's have a serious look at why Matthew starts his book the way he does, which Paul read excellently. And what's the first thing that Matthew wants to say? We see it. He tells us, Jesus is the Messiah, which means the same as Christ. Have a look at Matthew 1 verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, it seems like Matthew here doesn't believe in surprises, So right up front, in the very first sentence, with no spoiler alert, he tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. Jesus' disciples, of course, don't figure this out until chapter 16, but we're told right here in verse 1. But he hasn't completely ruined the ending because he hasn't told us what type of Christ Jesus is. That's what we can expect he'll do in the rest of the book. And that's exactly what he does And he starts in the very next words. He starts to show what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And he tells us that Jesus is the Messiah who is the son of David. Jesus stands in line with the greatest of all kings over Israel, David. And so what we have here in front of us is not merely a list of of random names. It's a royal lineage. Once it gets to David... We see who sat on the throne in Jerusalem and after the exile to Babylon, it shows who would have sat on the throne the instance that Israel gained independence from the people who ruled over them. Now, have you ever noticed that Matthew's genealogy is quite different to Luke's genealogy? Does that worry you? In Luke, Joseph's father is Heli, but in Matthew, it's Jacob. That's a pretty big problem, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of there being mistakes in the Bible. There are some people, though, who love the idea of there being mistakes in the Bible. There are some people who just read the Bible for moments like these. They're looking as hard as they can to find inconsistencies so they can point out to Christians why they're not very bright for believing the Bible. Have you ever come across people like that? I've come across quite a few in my life. Some people hold up Luke's genealogy alongside Matthew's and they say, how can Joseph's father be Heli in Luke and Jacob in Matthew? It's a very good question. But some people ask it not because they want to know the answer, but because they think they already know the answer and they want to try and worry Christians. Lots of people think they already know Jesus' identity. Sometimes they accuse Christians of being close-minded, but in reality, no matter what evidence you might give them, they've already made up their minds. There is no God, 
And therefore, Jesus is just another human being. They come to Christ, already decided who He is. And if we do that, whether we're atheists, agnostics or religious people, we'll never meet the true Christ. Well, not until that final day when we meet Him. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It's written by humans, but it's inspired by God. It's 100% human, but at exactly the same time, it's 100% divine. And it doesn't make stuff up. As Christians, we're actually putting our head on the chopping block. You know, you prove that the Bible is wrong, that it's making stuff up, and you've killed Christianity. We're making ourselves incredibly vulnerable claiming to hold the truth. And yet, after nearly 2,000 years, despite many axes swinging, no one has ever been able to prove Christianity wrong. People try, but time and time again, they show that they're reading the Bible wrong, or something that confirms the Bible turns up in archaeology, or the discovery of other ancient manuscripts ends up showing that actually the Bible's right, it doesn't make stuff up. There are several possible reasons why Luke's genealogy is different to Matthew's. The best two are either Luke is following Mary's bloodline, because as he writes, Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, not actually his biological son. Or more likely, Matthew's list is not so much concerned about biological relationships, but it's a a list of legal ancestry. It's a succession list a royal lineage and kingship it doesn't always go from father to son it usually stays within the wider family the family of David but there's adoption just like Jesus is adopted by Joseph to be his son and in the case of a king having no children the next heir in line may well be the nephew so Jacob could well have been Joseph's biological uncle so yet again the axe misses the mark So let's put Luke aside and come back to Matthew and see what he's doing with his list here. In Matthew's list, Jesus is not simply another king in the line of of kings with another king to follow him. The way Matthew arranges his list is very symbolic. Look at verse 17. He writes, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Matthew's point is that Jesus' coming is about fulfillment. And there's two reasons for this. First, there's there's three lots of 14 that show Jesus' coming isn't accidental, it's it's planned. And second, the way he breaks up, the mention of, of Abraham to David shows the start of the kingship in Israel. And then David to Babylon, shows the end of the kingship in Israel. And then from the exile to Jesus, shows that actually the kingship is about to reach its goal, its fulfillment. It's like everything before Jesus has just been the driveway that leads up to the mansion. And the Davidic kingship, this long list of names, it finds its fulfillment in the kingship of Jesus. That's where it was always heading. In other words, Jesus is not simply a son of David. He is the son of David. Not 
a Messiah, but the Messiah, the one to bring about all the promises God made to Abraham. Ah, sorry, to to David. Do you remember those promises? Um, What passage would we go to? Anyone want to be brave enough to call it out? If I wanted to know the promises, critical promises of David? 2 Samuel 7, perfect. Exactly where we'd go. Have a look at them. Do you remember them from pop-up moments we did last year? So David's decided he's going to build God a house. Before that, there was only a tent. But then God says to him, in these words through Nathan the prophet, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, these words are partially fulfilled in Solomon, David's son, but they find their goal in Jesus. But Matthew doesn't stop there because there's more to Jesus' identity that he wants us to see. Because in verse 1 in Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. What does Matthew mean by this? Isn't every Israelite the son of Abraham? Isn't that what it means to be an Israelite? Well, again, we see that he's saying more than just that Jesus is a true Israelite. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the true Israelite. Jesus fulfills all God's promises to Abraham too. Do you remember the promises that God made to Abraham? Someone other, someone else, where would we go to see those promises? Genesis 12, perfect. Look at what God promised Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In the opening chapters of his book, Matthew presents Jesus as reliving Israel's history and even embodying Israel. In chapter 2, we have the story of the the Magi coming to visit Jesus and they end up at Herod's palace looking for him. And you might remember that Herod gets quite jealous and he ends up killing all the babies in the town of Bethlehem. But Joseph, before that, is actually warned by God to take Jesus down to Egypt until it's safe to come back. And in Matthew 2.15, we read why God sent Joseph to Egypt. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is a quote from Hosea, which we just had read, which was talking about how God had rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God's son in in Hosea is, is Israel, right? But in Matthew, who is called out of Egypt? Who is God's son? Jesus. Is that an accident? Did Matthew not really know Hosea very well? He he mixed it up and didn't realise it was talking about Israel? No, this is actually Matthew equating Jesus with Israel. Matthew's point is that Jesus embodies the nation of Israel. All of what it meant to be Israel is summed up in Jesus. Jesus fulfils the promises and the destiny 
of Israel. Let's see if a, a diagram can help us with this. So God's plan in the world started with all humanity under Adam, but he narrows it down to the nation of Israel under Abraham. And he narrows it down yet again to the Davidic monarchy under David. But God's plan comes to a head, to a single point in Jesus. All Israel is narrowed down to one. All the Davidic line is reduced to one, to a single person, Jesus. And what we'll begin begin to see next week is that in Jesus, under him, a new humanity is actually called out. Jesus is the son of of Abraham and the son of David. And yet, if we're to get his identity right, there's still more that we need to see about his origins. Because not merely is he the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's also the son of God. Now, we saw him just called God's son, out of Egypt I called my son. And in the Old Testament, Israel could be called like that. Sometimes you'll read, not very often, but you'll read God calling Israel his son. The king of Israel could also be called God's son, and you see that far more often. But Jesus, he's the son of God in a way that goes beyond these two uses. We see his uniqueness in Matthew in verse 20. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus' origins is in Mary, yes, he's fully human, but his origin is beyond humanity. Jesus is conceived from the Holy Spirit, miraculously from the Spirit of God himself. We read about his uniqueness more in verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. No Israelite son could ever save people from their sins. No Davidic king even could save people from their sins. God alone can save people from their sins. And Jesus' divinity is stated even more clearly for us in the next verse, in 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll call him Emmanuel. And Matthew wants to make sure we get what that means, so he translates it for us, which means God with us. In Jesus, God is with us. God has entered humanity. So whose son is Jesus? Jesus is the son of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. Jesus is the son of David, the fulfillment of the promises to the Davidic king. And Jesus is the divine son of God, God with us. In other words, all of what God is doing in this world, all of it, finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Son of God, come to save his people from their sin. Matthew has sketched out for us here a picture of the identity of Jesus. So what do we do with it? What does it mean for us? Well, one thing that it means is that we don't decide who Jesus is. Jesus' identity, it's clearly revealed in history, in Scripture, and in the plans and the promises of God. Now, I reckon we know that in our heads, but it's tempting to try to make Jesus relevant to ourselves or to our world. And we're tempted to do this by changing his identity. 
it's very easy actually to subtly change Jesus and what ends up happening is he, he ends up looking more like us than like who he really is. So what's my Jesus look like? You know, Stephen George's Jesus. You know, is he a cardigan wearing, scooter riding, coffee drinking, try hard kind of hipster Jesus? Well, in some ways that's actually, you know, I'm, I could be tempted to make him a bit like me like that. And you see other people do it. Um, you know, what sort of Jesuses do you see people have? Sometimes you see a kind of environmental Jesus out there, a Jesus who's, you know, fully on about the environmental issues in this world or a laid-back kind of Jesus who's funny and easygoing, a non-judgmental kind of Jesus who'll have a beer with you. you. You come across people talking about that. A revolutionary kind of left-wing Jesus who's all about politics and the issues or a gentle Jesus of love, or a kind of manly Jesus. But the Jesus who says sex outside of marriage is wrong, you know, the Jesus who says homosexuality is a rejection of how he created things to be, the Jesus who says to us, you were bought at a price, honour me with your body, maybe he's not so appealing to us. Or the Jesus who says, you can't serve God and money. Who says, the greedy won't inherit the kingdom of God. Who says, it's better to give than receive. Maybe he's not so appealing. The Jesus who says that hell is a reality and unless you follow him, that's where you'll end up. is not so appealing to us. But here's the thing. It's not about us. It's not about what we want, who we want Jesus to be. It's about Jesus and who he is. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God's doing in the world, all of it. One day when I was at church, I was um, behind sort of cleaning up and picked up one of the Bibles that was left behind by someone. This is kind of what you do as a minister on a kind of weekly basis is gather other people's Bibles and, and what you do is you sort of flick through the pages trying to do a little bit of detective work to figure out whose Bible it is. You know, in the front, it usually has their names. Actually, why don't you just do it now? Write your name, it'll save me a bit of trouble later on. You can write me a nice message too. Hey, Stephen, thanks. Best way to contact me is like this. That'd be helpful. But anyway, this time I, I found a Bible left behind and I picked it up and flicked up and it didn't have a name in the front. It had, the person had written a message to themselves in the front. And it said this, it's not about you, it's all about Jesus. That's how Matthew starts his book. It's all about Jesus. Israel's history, it's all about Jesus. The Davidic kingship, it's all about Jesus. Everything that God's doing in the world centers around Jesus, which means we can't give him too much glory. You, it's just not possible to give him too much attention. There's not a moment or a decision in our lives that can escape his impact. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Where do I live? What church do I go to? What kind of job do I do? What roles do I take at church? What sport do I play? How do I spend my Friday nights? Jesus, if you get Jesus' identity right, it means as we live each moment, as we make each decision, it will be impacted by this reality. It's all about him. And we need to write that, not in the front of our Bibles, but in the front of our minds and 
in the depths of our hearts. Now, I can actually think of, of lots of examples where you guys are doing that, that illustrate this. You know, some of you have moved to Adelaide, not for work, but because the church where you've come from and the area where you've come from has got lots of, lots of Christians, lots of good things already happening. So you've, you've moved to help out in another place. Some of you have made decisions about who you're going out with, who you married or who you didn't marry, entirely because you know it's all about Jesus. Some of you have given up sporting glory or sporting delusions, depending on how you've looked at it, because you know it's all about Jesus. But rather than me embarrass individuals here, let me finish with just a couple of examples of friends of mine, friends you probably wouldn't know. Because I want to illustrate what it can look like sometimes, just to figure out that it's all about Jesus. So let me tell you about a good friend of mine, Russ, who was a farmer's kid. He was uh, his parents' only son. And he was one of those kids that always wanted to be a farmer. In his, you know, as a kid, he'd draw pictures of tractors and all that sort of thing. And he'd help out on the farm. And, and he loved it. And he kept loving it as he grew up as well. He wanted to be a farmer. Now, I met him at uni when he was studying agriculture. And as a, a boy who'd moved from the coast, I thought his love of farming was just a little bit weird, actually, along with the Akuba and the Dreiserbone. But at uni, Russ figured out it's not all about him. It's all about Jesus. And in the end, Russ was challenged to give up the farm and his plan to go back and to go into ministry and to use the, the gifts, the clear gifts that God had given him of preaching and evangelism and of discipling people. It was hard for us to make that call. It was hard for his parents, you know, the farm not being passed on from generation to generation like it had been. But Russ saw that everything God is doing in this world is centered on Jesus. And so he made the call to use his gifts. Not everyone has those gifts. And he used them for Jesus. Now, maybe some of you should actually do the same. But let me give you another example. Um, this, is, this is Pete. He was a friend of Russ's and mine. Also a farmer's son, also set to take on the family farm and also studying agriculture. Now, Pete too came to see that it's, it's not all about us. It's about Jesus. Now, Pete was one of those guys um, who not just had red hair, unfortunately, he also fit the stereotype of having a fiery temper as well. So fairly frequently during rugby union games, someone's studs would kind of connect with his face and Pete would come flying up in a rage from the ruck and his hand would somehow accidentally connect with somebody's head. But because he saw the significance of Jesus, Pete was ready to give up playing rugby, even though he loved it. In the end, he didn't because his teammates who were Christians convinced him to keep playing and they'd help him just keep a lid on his temper. Now, Pete's, he's now on the family farm. He's a farmer. But you know what he did? In between studying agriculture and going back to the farm, he did a year at Bible college because he knew on the farm he'd be isolated. His home church was very small. They didn't really have someone to preach. So he did a year at Bible college so that he could serve because he got it. He knew it's all about Jesus and he lined his decisions up with that truth. What decisions of yours at the moment are you lining up with that truth? Right at this moment, what's being impacted by the significance of Jesus? 
Is it what day you play sport or what day you let the kids play sport? Is it how many hours you're at work so that you're actually able to faithfully give time to your family and lead there like God wants you to? Is it a decision about which house you're going to buy, one that's above your means or one that's within it? Is it the decision to financially support overseas mission? Or is Jesus' significance impacting your decisions about how you spend your time, you know, who you hang out with, just those you enjoy being around or those who need you, those maybe who don't know about Jesus? Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God is doing in this world. We can't give him too much glory or too much attention. It's not about us. It's all about him. Let's pray. Lord, you know us and you know just how much we miss this truth that it really is all about Jesus. All of your plans in this world find their fulfillment in him. Lord, forgive us. Keep opening our eyes to see his great significance. Lord, his great love for us. Lord, help us to follow his lead and to be impacted moment by moment, decision by decision by who Jesus is, by his greatness, by his significance for all of our lives. Lord, help us because, as you know, we struggle so much with this. Lord, we thank you that despite our failure, you love us, that Jesus came to save us from our sin and came to make us your children. We thank you so much for that and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.